0: Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Catherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read initiative, a space where we're trying to help educators on their journey to best practices in teaching. Today, I have the pleasure of Dr. Nathaniel Swain. Join me from Australia, and we're going to talk about his journey to the science of learning. Welcome, Dr. Swain. How are you?
1: Good, thank you. It's a pretty cold and drizzly morning here and we've got a, a full day of, of kids um, and teachers coming in to organize. So it's, it's lovely to talk to you as a way to start the day.
0: Awesome. Well, do you want to give our listeners and viewers a little bit of a background about who you are and how you've got to where you are today?
1: Sure. So I um, currently work as a Teacher of um, foundation or prep students, we call it in Australia. Um, So that's the first year of um, uh, primary school or elementary school. And I also work uh, as a learning specialist within my school, which is a bit like an instructional coach. Um, I am thoroughly enjoying the work that I'm doing um, this year. It's the first time I've had that combination of roles. Um, And it's, yeah, it's it's very, as a lot of early years teachers would know, it's um, intense. And it's, um, very, very time consuming and, and uses up your energy, but you get so much back from the children that you work with. And I'm amazed at how much we're learning even only, um, so we're only 16 or 17 weeks into our academic journey together. And it's incredible what my students are already doing and, um, the, the knowledge that they're building and, um, just how excited they are to become readers and writers, um, and users of, of language as
0: well. Wonderful so how did your teaching journey start like what brought you to the session and how did what training did you take
1: interestingly um so my my journey is a bit of a um winding one, if you like. So, I've actually always been a teacher of some kind. I, I started dance teaching when I was only around 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at 16, I was thrown into a classroom full of um, young children trying to teach them dance. So, we did, um, you know, I was teaching tap and, and jazz and musical theatre and things like that. And um, that was always my passion to um, be a dancer and a performer. And um, I had the opportunity to then share that passion um, as an educator from a young age. Um, When I was deciding what to do for university, um, I was really drawn to um, the humanities and I really wanted to to learn more about language and linguistics. I'd studied a second language at school, so Japanese, and that was one of my favourite subjects in high school. Um, When I went to university, I realised that it wasn't so much the language Japanese that I really loved, it was language itself. And I then sort of specialised in linguistics and just Threw myself into understanding the ins and outs of how language works and all the richness and um, beauty that's there. So, um, understanding sentences and um, phrases and and morphology, which is the parts of words, throwing myself into um, pragmatics, which is the the way that we use language socially and um, for bigger purposes than just sentences. And um, I just couldn't stop. Um, loving what I was doing. When I came towards the end of my arts degree, my mum actually said to me, you know, you probably should go and get a diploma of education just, just in case. You don't have to be a teacher like me, like, cause my mum's a high school maths teacher and she actually taught me maths and science a few times in my, um, in my high school years and she always wanted to impart that on me that you know math uh, teaching is a fantastic career and um that it is a great option for people like myself who love working with people and love knowledge and, and love learning um, and i always pushed back about um, on that so i always said no mom i don't want to be a teacher just like you i i want to do something different so um at the end of my university degree i didn't go into a diploma of education i instead um, enrolled in a master of speech pathology And um, sometimes it's called speech language therapy or speech language pathology. And um, I hadn't heard of that profession until only six months before my um, bachelor degree ended. But as soon as I heard that it was something where you can work with children who have difficulties with language and with difficulties with reading um, and get to use your knowledge of those structures and how, um, to best explain them and to, to help kids who need that intensive support, intensive instruction. I was just like, that's fantastic. I want to do that. That's, that's exactly what I want to do. So I did that two year program and absolutely loved it. Um, I really threw myself into it and was wholeheartedly sort of committed to it. Um, and I worked for a few years as a speech pathologist in education sort of spaces. So within schools, um, in private practices, working with school children. And to be honest, what I really started to see wasn't so much what I thought I would see. I, I ended up um, working with a lot of kids who didn't really need me if they had had great teaching in the classroom and they, they shouldn't have had to come and their parents shouldn't have had to pay all this money for really expensive assessments and really, um, really sort of stressful journeys of their kids struggling at school for many years and, and having those difficulties. And it just... But, you know, from what I understood from the research, from what we were drummed into us in our um, speech pathology courses is using evidence-based practice and really trying to understand what the research tells us about what works best. And when I was looking at that and trying to understand it further, because we didn't get a huge amount of reading in our speech pathology course, like we got the basics and and we got a lot of language and a lot of linguistics. Um, But once you sort of scratch the surface and go deeper... If you've got that mindset that you should always be using the best available evidence, not just what someone says, um, I I then realized there was this whole this whole gap, this huge um, chasm between what the research was telling us over the last 30 years or so from neuroscience, from behavioral studies, from um, all of these different cognitive um, research projects that, that sort of accumulated this evidence that wasn't actually being taught to teachers and teachers weren't using it in the classroom. And you would know that experience intimately yourself, um, Dr. Garforth. So, um, it's probably a similar theme that you've had on this program many times, but I was, as most people are when they first discover it, I was just dumbfounded. I was like, how could this be possible that teachers aren't teaching the richness and the complexity and, and the really fantastic things that kids could learn about language so that they can become great readers and so that they can become great writers and, um, actually enjoy learning English and, and, um, all of, all of those things. So the science of reading, it wasn't a term back when I first started this journey, we didn't really use that um, term to describe what we were talking about, but, um, of course the science was always there. Um, it's uh it's amazing once you get to know it and once you realize what's there but then you realize how frustrating it is because it's so wide, um it's so poorly understood and there's so few people actually practicing um and using that science in their in their practice and it's it's not anyone's fault of course it's because there's such a big gap between what teachers are taught as i've learned over the years and and what um, uh, what the research actually tells us. So that was one of the first sort of pitfalls that I discovered on my, my journey, which sort of thought, made me think i this is not exactly what I thought it would be. And it's, uh, it's not lining up to what, um, should be happening in schools. And, uh, I think, you know, that that needs to be fixed. So I was like, you know, how can I fix that from my current position? Um, you know, working in, in schools as an outsider, coming in and supporting only those kids that, really need that extra support even though most kids would benefit and would have a better time under a, a different approach. Um, I, I sort of looked elsewhere and thought back to some of my um, mentors in my master's degree who were um, doing incredible research and thought maybe if I did some more research to advocate for these children um, I could hopefully um, could make a difference and to, could turn people's attention to this amazing research that's there and to start using it. Uh, and so that's where I um, began. Thinking about what what aspect of of the um, uh, the research is is missing, what are some gaps that I could try and fill? And one of those was um, vulnerable youth, so um, kids who ended up in youth justice, kids who struggle with mental health problems, and in the work that I was doing with young children in schools, especially those transitioning to high school, I was starting to see some of those knock on effects of of if when you're having those such consistent learning difficulties, when you're struggling with. Um, you know, understanding what pe- t- people are saying in class, if you've got oral language difficulties or language disorders as well, um, if you're really persistently struggling with the basics of literacy, um, it makes it pretty hard to stay happy and go lucky and, um, you know, uh, w- together when you're at school. I think a lot of those, those behavioral and, and emotional and social difficulties were really evident to me in my clinical work. And so I was drawn to that um, population um, and those, those kinds of kids that really, um, don't have a great time at school and trying to help, um, arrest their, those trajectories and, and really bring them back onto, um, a path where they, they do have more options open to them. And that's how I started working with Pamela Snow, who's researching youth justice and in language disorders is, is really well known. And then more recently in her, her work for advocating for the science of reading is, is obviously, um, putting her on the, the map as well. And uh, that's how I started my PhD research with her. And we planned a research project where I would, where I would go in with um, youth justice um, uh, inmates who were serving a sentence for various um, different uh, youth justice offenses and uh, giving them an opportunity, I guess, to learn how to read and how to understand language and, and anything that I could share as a speech pathologist with them um, to support their education and, and help them maybe change their, their view of education so it became something that, uh, was, was on the cards again for them rather than a complete write-off. Um, so I had the pleasure of, of doing that project and, um, I'm not sure if you've, you've seen any of that research, um, at all yet. Yeah, so, um, it's, some people are familiar with how many children there are in youth justice who have language and literacy difficulties and disorders. I think the rates of dyslexia are something around 60 or 70%. The rates of, um, language disorder, you know, are around 50 to 60, if not 70, depending on the, the studies. So these, um, these, these kids are really um, needing that additional support, needing that, um, need, needing that intervention. And so that's really what my research was um, trying to, to go about. Um, well,
0: I, I think it's important to mention that while you're in Australia and you did this research in Australia, it's not just what we're seeing in Australia. It's the same
1: thing. In it's the- a global Canada, phenomenon exactly. In yeah. America,
0: the US, the UK actually all around the world where this illiteracy issue, whether it's because mm. of dyslexia, mm. because of any other reason, because there are individuals in the juvenile justice system mm. uh, and, you know, um, for adults that are illiterate for a number of reasons. Mm. And we mm. see these individuals who have a fixed mindset and I've developed a learned helplessness so they don't think that they can actually learn it because they've been constantly showed in the education system that it doesn't work mm. and no matter how hard that i try i'm not gonna get it and everybody else is so i'm gonna either look stupid or be the bad kid
1: mm. and it's it's a real shame that um <laughs> had their teachers had access to this knowledge and access to these practices that many of these kids that are currently, you know, either in the system or have had a terrible time at school and are sort of coping with all the ramifications of that and the the shortened options that they have available to them, they could have had a much better experience um, if the teachers had used that that research or that research had been shown to them while they were training as teachers. Um, And that's what's really depressing, I think, is that Um, There's so many wasted opportunities currently in the way the system works. And it's, as you said, it's not just in um, Australia, it's in Canada, it's in the US, it's the UK. These um, studies um, show very similar um, rates of these kinds of difficulties. And they're a lot more um, amplified in these vulnerable populations, whether it's mental health or um, alternative education settings or things like youth justice as well Um, and as you said it's a range of reasons some of them because they have distinct and very severe um, learning um, difficulties or specific learning disabilities Um, but for others it's because they um, they had some really poor experiences to begin with at school and they struggle to pick up reading even though they would have picked it up if they had great and ins- like good instruction just in the general classroom without any special education. So what you'd call an instructional casualty, they really just, just because of poor teaching, they've actually developed this problem. And then that set them on this trajectory of, as you said, finding school really difficult and saying, I'm either going to feel like I'm going to be left behind or I'm not, I'm going to be the laughing stock of the class, or I'm not going to even try and I'm going to make it the focus on something else. And my behavior is going to um, change completely because I don't want to feel like that anymore, and I don't want to be made to feel like I'm stupid or that I can't learn. Um, it's and it, 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 it kills me every time I, I think about those stories and the young people that I did work with in my research. And um, since then, it's um, yeah, it, it, it breaks my heart that so many of them would have had much better experiences and would have had all of those options open to them if um, they'd had great teaching from the very beginning. And, you know, that was one of the nails in the coffin, I think, as I was finishing my PhD research and I was working within um, universities and trying to, I guess, get into education faculties and start, start making some of those changes or start influencing those groups. The intransigence and the, the lack of mobility of, of uh, being willing to shift, willingness to shift on these ideas is really significant. Um, And I felt, you know, very early on, even a year into that after my PhD, thinking I'm not going to get headway here unless I have the kudos and the respect as a classroom teacher. Like they're not going to listen to me, even though I'm using evidence and science and research. It's a bit like, uh, I don't know, a medical researcher who's not yet a doctor coming in and saying you know we have to change our hygiene practices or we have to change our um, surgical process and things like that even though they might have the best studies in the world there's some element of a profession looking at another professional from a different background and thinking i don't can't trust you because you don't know what it's like um and and you know that is what made me think after already having a master's degree and a phd i need to go back and get another (laughs) degree and retool as a teacher and so that's exactly what i did Um, and it was, it was incredible. It was a really great, um, opportunity to go and really see it for myself and see what these degrees are like and, um, and to understand, I guess, where these, these practices that I'd seen over the last 10 years in schools are coming from and where this thinking or, or misconceptions that I'd experienced when doing professional learning with teachers had come from. And it was mind blowing. It was, it was more than I had imagined of how big the gaps are and how misleading some of the popular ideas that are taught in university education's um uh, for teachers uh it, just just how significant the situation is i think we've um it's really as as you will know as well from your experiences um dr garforth it, it it's it's very frustrating how many different voices are fighting within this space. And, you know, the science of reading is really just one of those issues that are trying to come to the fore and trying to to find their place within initial teacher education. I think everyone wants to have a, uh, a say in, in what teachers should learn or how teachers should teach. And unfortunately, the things that are really popular and the things that are in vogue at the moment aren't always aligning with what we know um, from the science of learning. So not just in the reading and writing space, but also in just general good instruction and good um, ensuring that your students actually learn what you intend them to learn. So the, the really the preponderance of um, constructivism and, and the view that every student should ultimately be their own teacher. Um, and the perverse view of that—that that although students do have to create their own models of what they're learning and make sense of it themselves—that that you know they shouldn't—they shouldn't be left to struggle. They shouldn't be assumed that helping them discover it for themselves first is always the best way. Like this, um, this unwillingness to give them models or give them um, worked examples or provide explicit teaching because it might somehow get in the way of their independence in their learning—I think—is is one of the really warped views of, of what the, the research from the sixties and seventies has, um, turned into. Um, and it, it means that sometimes teachers and teacher educators are hamstrung because they believe that if they try and push for more explicit teaching in reading or in any other of the disciplines, um, it's like they're taking that opportunity for kids away from them, um, of, of being able to discover it for themselves because somehow naturally learning it by yourself is, is always better. Um, which, you know, is really a myth that's taken hold. And and it's something that's getting in the way of really great instruction, um, taking its rightful place um, in initial teacher education, but also in professional learning and and general practice for teachers. Um, So that was eye-opening, going back and getting that teaching degree. And um, I couldn't, couldn't be in the position that I am now to, to speak with such confidence about where the gaps are in the current, in the sectors and, and across, you know, the English speaking world, these themes are very similar. And there's differences of course, between jurisdictions, but the general idea that teachers have been, um, haven't been given access to this knowledge and haven't been given access to this research that would completely change the way that they think about their teaching. Um, I think that's the general problem that we have at the moment. And it's really, it's really um, significant and easy to see in the reading space because you can see illiteracy so easily. And, and we've got um, measures like in Australia, we've got NAPLAN and in the U S they've got the NAEP. All of these things are showing how um, many kids are actually struggling with basic literacy and, and um, on the other hand, numeracy skills as well. And I don't think it's acceptable to have a third or sometimes half of kids failing to meet basic or proficient um, status in, in those skills. I think, in a knowledge, um, economy where the professions are only going to become more intellectually, um, demanding and, and more needing of, of really, um, robust literacy skills, it's not responsible of us as a society to accept these rates of illiteracy, um, whether they're because of dyslexia or because of simply poor instruction. So that's, that's really, you know, set me forth into this current phase of my career, where. I'm all about amazing classroom teaching and I'm about doing that for myself and and for showing others um, and also supporting teachers as a classroom teacher with this background in, you know, another discipline as well, which always, always shapes how I think and always makes me um, just, just take what I see in in the space with a grain of salt because, you know, what's the evidence, what's the research behind it is always my question.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's fascinating that you have that linguistic and speech and language pathology background going into the teacher education program. How did you find the language arts courses that you took as part of your teacher education program understood your knowledge? Because I know when I went in, I mean I am not a speech and language pathologist and I'm not a, a linguist, but I, I have taken linguistic courses and exactly. as a an classic I had systematic explicit instruction. And a pretty good knowledge about how things worked.
1: You've seen um, it for yourself on the other side. So you know what it should look yeah. like. Yeah.
0: Um, so I, I know in my, my coursework, I was not very impressed. Because we weren't being shown how to teach reading. We were being shown mm. what to do once the students knew how to read. Mm. And when you know, I asked my probe for more information, they were like, well, you know, the special education teacher is going to handle that. And the kids just learn how to read naturally.
1: Mm, yeah, and and then- I, exactly. I, I think it's that's exactly the themes that I encountered in my degree as well. And it's it's similar to all the teachers that I talked to about their own experiences. Once they've started a science of reading journey, um, it's flabbergasting how much, how much has been left out. I think you're right that the assumption is that kids will just learn to do all those difficult decoding and all those things that they don't want to talk about skills by themselves. And if they don't, then that's not really the problem of the, the classroom teacher, apparently, is the view. Um, and the really, the focus should be on rich literature and on making meaning from text and enjoying text together and a really strong focus on guided reading groups. And for some reason, just reading together and asking questions is meant to just do it all. Um, and I think it's, it's a real, it's a real disappointment that so many teachers go into the profession thinking that that's all that's involved and that when they suddenly encounter kids who aren't making progress or, you know, I don't know if they would realize this, but that, you know, getting kids to drill sight words and things like that, um, without having learned how to decode, um, obviously has some perverse effects where you've got kids constantly guessing at words or confusing similar shaped words, which shouldn't be a thing because they should be looking at every single letter and mapping those. Um, even if they're, um, irregular, they should start mapping the regular parts of those words and then just remembering the irregular ones as we know from the research. So, you know, there's, it must be a shock to so many teachers, um, once they, they take that knowledge that they have got which is mainly around literature and constructivism and take that into the classroom and realize that it doesn't always work. And that unless you've got a really um, magical class, for some reason there's nearly every student has managed to start reading before they come to school and you can just read books together and, um, magically it all happens. Um, it's, it's a real shock for a lot of teachers. I think when they realize that there's a huge gap in their knowledge and they have no idea how to teach those, those, 20% 20%, uh, 20% of kids who are not making progress or are stagnating in their reading or constantly guessing and they don't know how to, how to stop them doing that now. Cause it's become like a habit. Um, or who can't progress past certain levels that have a lot of pictures and a lot of predictable structures. If they're using predictable, um, sort of leveled readers, not being able to move them past the ones that have the same sentence repeated page after page, except for the last page of the book. Um, because obviously they're not reading Really, they're actually just predicting what might go in that that one word that's changing every page, um, and I've you know I've I don't know if you've seen my blog post about this, but I've, I did a, a debate recently with some really um, hardline uh, balanced literacy advocates who've been doing it for many years and this is one of those points where they just can't see eye to eye with, um, what's, what's come from the science in that they believe that, yeah, it's good for them to guess. It's good for them to make a prediction and you should be encouraging that and it, it you know, give them text that they already know something about so they can use their knowledge and, and make sense of it. And it, you know, focusing on the nitty gritty of the um, sound letter patterns or the phonics is, you know, demeans children or makes them feel bad about themselves because they have to look at these difficult words. And English is so hard anyway, like how would you even break it down? So it's, um, for me, it's frustrating because these are people who have the the responsibility of educating the next generation of teachers. And Um, In a lot of cases, and there are obviously exceptions to this, and we're lucky that there's some movement going on, but in a lot of cases, they um, don't actually have this knowledge for themselves and haven't ever tried to fill those gaps. They preferred to spend their time learning about aspects of education that's more suited to their interests, so the sociology of education or the history of education or um, how engagement can be optimized so that kids will be happy to learn or looking at things like, um, critical reading or critical theory and and how it relates to literature. And it's like, these are, these are important issues, but fundamentally if kids aren't reading these books, they're not going to become critical readers. Um, they, you need to actually teach them the foundational skills they need so that they can engage in these conversations about characters and, um, what it means for postmodernist theory and things like that. It's, it's a bit of a joke to assume that, um, you know, just getting them reading, is enough. Um, it, and it's, it's a, it's a real slap in the face for parents who are told, oh, you should have read to them more, um, when they may have been reading to them every day for their whole entire life. Um, which I know some parents of children with dyslexia will, um, will just be so shocked by those comments because that's exactly what they've done. Um, when the, when the teacher, you know, not knowing any better, assumes that it must be because the parents aren't reading to them that they haven't made this progress because I've been taught that every student learns to read by themselves and just figures it out. And if they don't, then, you know, it's not really my problem as a classroom teacher. And that's just, it can't, it can't go on like that. It's, it's, um, it's awful. And, you know, in the classroom that I'm in now, in the school that I'm working in now, it's the complete opposite. We are so committed and so diligent around teaching every single child how to learn and to crack the code even in the first term of school we have um we've nearly got every student um blending and segmenting and starting to read um at a very minimum starting to read vowel consonant or consonant vowel consonant words we've of course got a big range and many who are reading much harder books as well um, and much harder words than that. But at a very minimum, we're catching all those kids that would have languished if they'd just been like, oh, they'll figure it out. And you no, know, we've, we've provided that intervention. We've provided that extra support, that extra time learning those those basics so that they don't actually have a gap that's widening between them and their peers. And it's so satisfying when you get kids suddenly cracking that code and realizing how sounds can be blended together and to make words. And that's how they can unlock the meaning that's within those words that are on the page. And, it's, I don't know why you would want to teach in any other way. It's um, it's incredible once you build that sense of independence, and they then can't wait to go and find the next book and to, to apply those skills to that, or to realise they can read signs that are around the the, the space, or they can they can read the, the teacher instructions that are on the presentations that we put up sometimes. And oh, I didn't realise you could you could read that. Like it, it's it's incredible, and it's so heartening to know that I'm setting these these students up for success, and I'm helping them. Have a really successful introduction to their schooling career and, and one in which they're not going to be left behind and that everything that we're doing is is helping them to make a successful transition to becoming a reader and writer and independent thinker
0: yeah well and i think it's important to highlight that we can catch these children that are at risk for reading failure very early on in their preschool years so when they're three and four year olds you know i've known kids that were two and a half that you can identify Mm. the problems with atypical pronunciations in how they said letters and how they heard the language. And it wasn't because they didn't understand the language or they weren't native speakers of the language. It was because of their phonological processing deficit. Mm. And when we apply that intervention early. It decreases the amount of time that they're going to need and it sets them off for better results i mean there have been numerous studies done around the world that shows you know using a model where you do frequent early screening of students uh in their first few years of schooling and responding to their needs whether it's considered an rti or an mm-hmm. mtss model if you were able to take that information and inform your practices we can get 95 percent of kids reading
1: mm. Exactly. And that's the, that's the statistic that we'd want where it's only, only five or sometimes as low as 4% will require that ongoing intervention because they just need more and they need more support and they need that opportunity to consolidate those skills. But you know, that, that's the ideal situation where it's actually those kids that are tier three um, in that tier three sort of band at that moment and, and needing tier three and tier two support. Those are the ones that are actually getting it, not just not not most kids or all these instructional casualties that shouldn't have, have required that intervention or, or could have benefited, as you said, from much earlier support or much earlier um, opportunities to develop that phonemic proficiency and that um, awareness of the, how sounds and letters are, um, are represented and, and just those basics that then set them up for success.
0: Mm-hmm. One thing that you mentioned about the class that you're, you're working with this year is how you have some that are still at that blending segmenting stage and you have kids that are beyond the CVC. And I think that's really important to highlight that yes, Mm. in a kindergarten classroom, you're going to have this range of students. And in a structured literacy or uh, science of reading approach, you're not saying that all of these students are on the same track. Mm. They're all on the same track for learning to become proficient readers, but they're not getting Mm. all the same instruction. So Mm. when you have those students, that are you know their are kids that enter your classroom already reading because of the language rich experience mm-hmm. and their knowledge coming into the grade so you're not making them go back to basics you're building on the skills that they have mm. and helping those that need to be at that basic level
1: mm, that's right and it's it's really as you said with an rti responsive intervention approach the the tier one is Instruction is where all that high quality, um, you know, instruction for every student happens. And that's where if some students are starting to decode or starting to um, recognize words instantly at the start of the year, it won't, we'll be going through some of those sound letter patterns that are, more introductory for some of those other students, not for the purpose of reading, because they can already start to read some of those words, but for the purpose of their spelling. So that they not don't just um, recognize words instantly, but actually can analyze words and can start to um, transcribe the sounds that they hear in unfamiliar words. And that's where you see um, readers who are really confident at the start of the year suddenly realize that it's not just about instantly recognizing what's there. It's also about trying to um, represent those those sounds with the letters that that they have available to them and with the codes that we teach them um and that's where i feel like we have that that opportunity for in class sort of um there's differential sort of uh levels of of benefit across the way so the kids that are already reading they're getting really the the extra boost to um hone their awareness and hone their ability to then spell those words the kids who haven't started and, and haven't made that transition to independent reading as yet they're really just getting their first dose and they're getting their first opportunity. And some of those will only need that first tier one in- introduction. After we, you know, do some um, screening assessments and, and see how they're tracking. I think we did one in the, the fifth week or the sixth week. We did a, another round to see how kids were going. Then there was maybe 20% of kids that were there that just, they didn't quite understand what was going on and they needed that extra boost and so then they got that support straight away and we then you know do another screening assessment um, five or six weeks later so the start of this term for instance and suddenly um, we realized that that group has gone down to about 10% and those 10% are now still getting extra support whereas the other 10 who've gotten that intervention very early um, now just going to that tier one and uh, are staying in there and benefiting just as much as everyone else. Um, it's yeah it, it it's a model that I think is really um, empowering to teachers as well because it means that if you do really high quality instruction for the entire group and then provide additional support with the resources hopefully that your school has um, as well as yourself in the classroom when you need to work individually with those or in small groups you can um, you, you can really reach everyone um, it's Obviously, it'll be quicker and easier if you've got those abilities to provide intervention early. And we've really invested early so that um, there won't actually be as much of a need later on. It actually saves the student time. It saves them op- missed opportunities and also saves us to free up more resources later on. And it means that, um, yeah, it means that those early di- differences between the cohorts can then be sort of brought up in the tail of you know the students that are having that difficulty actually get much closer towards the middle, um, and yeah, it means that you can think of your class as a whole, as a whole class ready to sort of continue together because you've ensured that whole cohort is working um, together solidly, and you you always have. Um, kids at the top or kids at the bottom that you, you, you have this view that there's, um, floors to where you are, but no ceiling. So those kids that are always going to continue learning actually can continue going and they're going to read harder books and write harder words and start writing their own stories. And I've received little notes from some of my high flyers themselves who've written me a story on the weekend or something. And they, they've got that encouragement to continue, continue doing that. Even though some kids aren't nearly ready to they're, they're only writing a sentence or so at the moment. So, um, you know, having that opportunity to just lift up the floor so that there's that support for those kids that need it and then open up. So there is no ceiling and no limit to what kids can do with those reading skills once they can. And it's simple things. And we'll talk about this next time as well, obviously, but, um, simple things like when you have a word that everyone is, is going back to the tables to practice spelling after having read similar words. Um, some of the the group might only spell one word and they, they, they spend, you know, a few minutes figuring out sound by sound and representing each letter, each um, sound that they hear the others might write one extra word, a bonus, and the, on top of that, the others might write us, like the really high flyers might write even a short sentence. I'll say, put that word into a sentence and write that. And they're still doing the same work together. There's just that little bit of inbuilt differentiation that allows for, um, without any preparation or extra time for me, because that time is so precious and needs to be put into developing high quality instruction rather than three different versions of, of the same lesson. Um it, it's something that you can do incidentally as as you need to so that when the so you see kids that have got the right answer, they're finished quicker. Okay, we'll give them another word. Okay, we'll give them another sentence. Um and it means everyone still feels part of the same learning community rather than putting them into streams or um uh, you know, always having different groups that they work in and thinking, oh, I'm in the middle group or I'm in the low group or whatever it might be. So I, I think there's different views in the community, um uh, science of reading community that is about, you know, how often to stream or how often to separate into different groups and things like that. I think we've struck a good balance in the school that we're um, at now at Brandon Park. Um, but I look forward to discussing that with you more next week. That'll be really good.
0: Definitely. And especially looking at how, you know, even in this, First year of school classroom, whether it's kindergarten or primary or um they call it infants over in the in the UK. Yeah. You can have very high quality instruction, not just focusing on the phonics and the phonological awareness. You can get deeper insight into that. I mean, you said that you were interested in morphology. I, I've uh, seen yeah, lessons of morphology. morphology. Going into those, you know, early years and using them. Uh, one example that I always like using at that age is looking at the prefixes uni, bi, and try. Uh, mm. And the base cycle. And because, you know, a, a bicycle and a tricycle are usually pretty familiar to most students those age, and unicycle may not but you can introduce it. And if you show it, yeah. they can understand what it is.
1: Yeah. And Uh, it's funny you said that. We've actually, we just looked at cycle recently because we were talking about the cycle of the seasons and then the life cycle of butterflies and talking about what cycle means as a vocabulary word. And Mm -hmm. just incidentally, I talked about, you might've heard of a bicycle. So, what Mm -hmm. does bi mean? It means two. And so, we were able to then unpack that with, um, with with our students and then talked about try and then talked about uni. So, it, it, those sort of things are just incredible to introduce to kids and it helps to, for them to see that it's not just letters on a page, you know, once you start getting into the richness of, um, what's there, once you've got some basic decoding and, and, and spelling skills, um, there's so much to learn about your own language and so much meaning that's hidden within words and within phrases and the history behind things as well. So that's certainly where things go, um, into the, the um, the end of the foundation year or the first year of school and, and throughout, um, our, our scope and sequence that we follow, um, with, um, which we'll talk more about next week. But it's um, it, it's incredible just how far they go in terms of understanding the morphology and the, even the etymology as well. So the meanings and the histories behind words.
0: And those high flyers can figure out the spelling. They love it, elements, yep. Whereas the lower, lower ones, are the, this, uh, the floor students, they'll still get the understanding and the concepts. They may not yes. associate the the graphemes to the, the morphemes. Right. And that's fine because we're not
1: asking them to. They're they're benefiting from that meaning and that when they hear that word, they've got that, that link to understand, you know, why is it called a bicycle versus a tricycle? And then when they come across, you know, other words that use those prefixes, they can start to unpack them not only in their reading because they might, as you said, might not be reading those words yet, but, they could hear them and could understand them. And they develop those oral language skills, which are fundamental once you start shifting from, you know, learning to read to reading to learn.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really look forward to next week where we see more in your classroom and the tips Mm. and strategies that you have. And just amazing the work that you're doing and how you're sharing it with others uh, across the world.
1: Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to join you um, this morning or this evening, your time. Um, And I really look forward to next week. It'll be a really fantastic discussion and I hope people got um, something out of my little journey, which is quite convoluted, but um, it's something that certainly set me on a path to trying to change things in Australia, but also, you know, as much as we can around the world, we are a growing community of people who are trying to make these changes and support teachers to do their very best to support students. Um, And I, I feel like your mission is very much
0: aligned with mine. So it's a pleasure to share that with you. Thank you.